Welcome to Translation Chat, a podcast from Japanese media translation, where your host, Jennifer O'Donnell, that's me, chats with translators and editors in the Japanese to English localization industry about their favorite translations of Japanese media. In this episode, we're talking to Daniel Morales. Daniel is a writer, translator, and soon to be former association professional based in Chicago. He writes the website howtojapanese.com and is a regular contributor to the Japan Times bilingual page. Welcome to Translation Chat. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. This is, I've been looking forward to this. Great. So you're going to be talking with us today about the translation of Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World by Haruki Murakami, yes. translated by Alfred Bourbon. Bourbon? 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 Bourbon. Bur- <laughs> and yes. edited by Elmer Luke. Yes, and it's good that you mentioned that. I, he, gets, um, he gets a line in the beginning of the book, I think, not on the cover, but in the at the very front matter, he's noted the translator would like to thank Elmer Luke. And uh, they were basically working side by side, translating together. And we know this because a, a book came out uh, in the last year by David Karashima, who we're reading when we're reading Murakami is the title. And uh, uh, Karashima was able to talk with both of them in, in um, pretty pretty good detail. So there's some cool cool stories about this translation. That's exciting. So it's not... This isn't a translation that was just handed by the translator and then the editor did some things and then the translator checked and then they sent it off to print. This was actually in a collaborative piece of work. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. So uh, the book was originally written in 1985 and Mm. it's um, just to give a quick summary, it's uh, it's, uh, told in two different stories, alternating chapters. It's, It's the first time Murakami used that techniques, which... He went on to use a couple different times, and um, it's the two stories are loosely uh, the first uh, is the Hardboiled Wonderland uh, story. It's about a, a, a nameless narrator who is a human uh, two-factor authentication device. Basically, he launders data for this uh, organization called the System uh, that's always trying to keep protect data uh, from this group called the Factory. And he gets asked to shuffle data for this kind of uh, eccentric scientist and his um, teenage, uh, horny teenage daughter, (laughs) our granddaughter, I should say. And that'll come into, that'll come up uh, in a little bit, which is why I mentioned her. And then the other story is a name, another nameless narrator. Uh, So that story is set in Tokyo. And, And this other part of the story, the even numbered chapters are set in a, a town and you, you get a vague sense of this town. The, the narrator's just arrived there, and he is uh, when he arrives, he is separated from his shadow uh, by the gatekeeper, and uh, the gatekeeper is this kind of giant who uh, guides him into town and, and welcomes him, and uh, and but is also this kind of like lurking presence, and he's uh, drafted to be the dream reader the, the dream reader for the town and uh over the course of the book you kind of find out how these two stories are, are intertwined and so written in 1985 um and then yes translated in 1991 which was a year after it was republished in, for the complete works murakami's complete works and Birnbaum had done murakami before he did Murakami's first two novels for Kodansha International. And actually it was for, it wasn't for their main press. It was for a smaller press where it included uh, uh, Japanese vocabulary uh, explanations in the back. So it would include like 
the English definitions in Japanese for Japanese readers. So it was being marketed as English reader for English readers in Japan. And uh, those translations, it sounded like from Karashima's book were basically, you know, Birnbaum sent them in and then the translation was published and then he received a copy. So it was very like uh, kind very of one and done. Sort of how yeah. a lot of, I guess mostly in light novels, how a lot of literature is translated today, at least for Japanese to English. Exactly. Yeah. And then Elmer Luke, it's, it's you know, I had always heard stories about him and, uh, but didn't really know much about him. He's really fascinating. Uh, just a tremendous editor, uh, really hands-on as an editor. And yeah, I mean, he he and, and Birnbaum, Alfred Birnbaum, were working, you know, side by side on this, doing a lot of rewriting. You know, this is 1991. So this is Murakami's second book in translation after A Wild Sheep Chase. So he doesn't have the the name recognition. He doesn't really have any kind of pull in the literary world, but um, they thought this would be the, the, the next best book to publish. Um, it would be a little bit more uh, interesting for English readership. And so, yeah, they, they did a lot to the book in translation, I would say. That's really interesting. Did they mention whether that was a choice from the publishers or from Murakami himself to sort of re, to really rewrite and really create a, a piece of text that reads more like an English novel than a translated novel. I think it was, it was Birnbaum and Luke. I think it was their decision. Mm-hmm. You know, it, um, they say in the book that, that when they delivered the translation, Murakami had no comments about it, that he was fine with it. And it's, it's, it's really interesting, you know, um, in the complete works edition, Murakami includes a small like supplemental pamphlet with it, where he's uh, kind of giving directors commentary on it. And he talks a lot about the, the kind of, um, um, he calls them maitana to omo bubun. So places where, you know, I thought, oh, well, that doesn't quite work or something mm-hmm. like that, you know. And he also talks about the kansedo, the degree of completion of the novel itself. So, you know, it, it seems like he's not, he wasn't totally satisfied with how the novel came out he even made some changes himself Mm -hmm. when it was republished in the complete works so he clearly wasn't opposed to it but it's very clear from some quotes by um elmer luke and birnbaum that they had uh they had um a certain effect in mind that they wanted with the translation or, or not effect but they were they wanted to avoid certain things and uh end up with a, a good product, I think. And so I think it was their decision to, to, to do what they did. That's really interesting. So what kind of changes did they make? What, what sort of things did they want to avoid in their translation? Sure. I think, well, just off the top, two of the really interesting choices they made. Uh, I mean, the, the novel is not an easy translation. So the alternating chapters are also uh, given in with different pronouns. So uh, one set of chapters is watashi and the other is boku. So the, um, this kind of like cyber data, uh, you know, uh, worker is watashi and the guy, uh, the guy in this t- nameless town, which feels, you know, almost like this kind of bizarre, um, European town surrounded by a wall that he can't escape is boku. And it's, you know, it's really, it would be almost impossible to replicate that yeah. with the pronoun alone. In <laughs> Especially because we only have one type of I. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so they made a huge decision to translate the end of the world sections in present tense. And 
um, it's a it's a really effective choice. You know, it's um, it it gives those chapters a very different feel. Um, they're very timeless in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murakami is also more controlled in those chapters, um, and so and and with the additions or and cuts that the translators make, it, it feels less Murakami than the other chapters, which are the kind of sometimes stream of consciousness, <laughs> um, riffing on life, modern life in Tokyo, that, that is very characteristic of Murakami. So that's, I think, one of the, the biggest choices that they made, like that you can notice off the top. And, you know, Jay Rubin has mentioned this, I think, in, in his book and, and elsewhere, that, you know, that is effective in part because, you know, when you pick up the book and you're reading it in Japanese, you know exactly what chapter you're in. If it's Watashi, it's this chapter. If it's Boku, it's End of the World, mm-hmm. right? And, and same with the English now. If it's going to read a different way. So Hard Boiled Wonderland was in past tense and End of the World was in mm-hmm. present tense. That's really, yes. that's such an interesting way to get around that. Because mm-hmm. I think most translators Merc- would try and, try and incorporate the I somehow mm-hmm. in... in mm-hmm. On a, on a link, like on a lexical level rather than the syntactical level that they approached. That's interesting. Sorry, you were going to say. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think it would be hard to do that. It really would be. You couldn't do it, I don't think, with a single pronoun. But but also, you know, I do think you're right that there is the type of the way people are talking is very different in both parts of the chapters. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the characters are different. You know, you've got this crazy grandfather who's speaking in very... Um, uh, kind of uh, not quite like dialect, but but you know very, not quite uh, you know standard Kyojungo. and mm-hmm. then he they capture that really well. But then in the end of the world sections, it's very plain, a little bit more formal. Um, and then yeah, but no, I think the present tense does it well. And then actually Murakami went on to borrow that kind of take from his translators for I think it was Kafka on the Shore. I think I think half of that book is in past tense and half is in present tense. That's really interesting that it then fed back and influenced his own writing. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah. And then the other, one other interesting choice just off the like kind of big picture is that um, the translation of Kokoro in the end of the world sections, um, well, I guess this will be a little bit of a spoiler. So I, there'll probably be maybe some minor spoilers. I'll try not to spoil too much, but the, the, um, the people in the town don't have uh, Kokoro. Uh, in Japanese, and they lose their shadows. Their shadows are uh, kind of kept in a separate area of the town, and they eventually wither and die and are buried in this cemetery uh, just outside the town under this apple grove, uh, grove of apple trees. And um, when that happens, they lose their mind, which it doesn't, it's not like going crazy. Uh, I was real, when I was getting ready for the podcast, I was like, oh, losing your mind, that sounds like going Mm. crazy. It's just becoming like a little bit less, like um, uh, maybe like slightly more robotic, less human, I would say. And so So they go with mind for the translation. So more mindless rather than losing your mind. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, but rather, you know, you could have gone with heart, you could have gone with soul, Mm. You could, it's um, there. Were, I think you know with kokoro, it's such a, a big word in Japanese, ex- more expansive word in Japanese, and then in English you kind of get pinned down a little bit. But but mind, I think was re- was really effective, you know, and like like you get interesting phrases like pieces of mind, and uh, the 
at, at one point the narrator is trying to collect the mind uh, the pieces of mind uh, and and tie them all back together Ooh. that's really interesting so it could have given a completely different feel if they went for soul or heart or something absolutely else. yeah yeah i think mind is probably the best mm-hmm. choice I, I it does feel very natural and uh yeah so that those i think were the were two kind of big picture changes that hit me off the bat when i was mm-hmm. uh was rereading at this time because um, i think when i was i prepped for the podcast and I was looking at all these notes. I, I did a, a, bl- a close blog of, of this book for six years. It took me uh, six years only because I was kind of off and on doing it. And, uh, and so I had been really kind of like uh, on the sentence level of the book for a while. But then when I, when I kind of backed out and reread it just in English this time, um, that's re- that really struck, stuck out to me as something that was effective, those two choices, the, the tenses and then kokoro. So you also mentioned they wanted to avoid certain things. Yes. Can you expect like, expand on that? Yes, absolutely. So the the horny granddaughter. There we go. So <laughs> now, we're, now we're back to that. So um, sh- she is a very interesting character. So basically, um, she kind of, uh, I guess, is her grandfather's executive assistant to a certain extent. And you find out that her family has died and, and she's basically been raised by her grandfather, homeschooled because he doesn't believe in the educational system, you know, you don't learn anything in school, you know, and, and so she, I think she's 15 or 17, I can't remember. And she's very curious, because she doesn't interact with really anyone except for her grandfather. So she's very like sexually curious. Mm-hmm. And uh, when this narrator comes into her, uh, into, into the world to, to, you know, work with the grandfather, she's always asking him all these questions. And there are there are some really really extensive cuts made to uh, scenes with her, both um, some that are just extraneous and some that are very like uh, extremely like uh, romantic and sexual. So, for example, um, when the narrator um, to so it's a it's such a bizarre novel when he he goes to this building in Tokyo and then eventually is led to this tunnel which he gets to through a cabinet in, a, in this office building it, it, it's almost like being like being john malkovich a little bit he's like go, going <laughs> through this like tunnel into this uh subterranean uh you know sewer system and then over to the grandfather's lab and he's forced to kind of go through this this trek a couple different times and in one time the second time i think when he's going back with the granddaughter they kind of bump into each other uh, in the dark and embrace and make out. And there's like a detailed make out scene, which gets cut in the English completely. Oh, wow. And then, yeah. And there's also, um, but at the same time, there's a cut for where she's just singing a song about her pink bicycle. She wears all pink clothes. She loves the color pink and they're, they're trading off singing songs. And so the narrator sings, I think white Christmas or some version of white Christmas and that gets cut, but so does her pink bicycle song, which is kind of weird and extraneous and very stream of conscious, but also kind of like is pointing at some of the connections between the two stories. It's kind of like uh, bringing in some cues from the end of the world section of the novel, but that section gets cut. Hmm. And then, yeah. And then there's a, a scene where, Later in the novel where she's uh, 
back at the narrator's um, apartment after escaping this, you know, the subterranean lair. And uh, she strips to take a shower and the narrator is just kind of like watching. And so that gets cut. So the, the narrators, I mean, Luke is very, Elmer Luke is very explicit about this. And, and here's a qu- quick quote I think I can give from the book. He said that the larger concern for me was that the chaff was cluttering the picture. Stuff was repetitious or tangential or less than critical to the narrative or worked against it. The chaff needed to be cold. So that what we had was germane if, or if not appealingly whimsical or amusing or deep. Um, not think readers could stick with a story that seemed on one hand so purposefully constructed, but not tightly held together. I thought if we didn't do that, the readers who liked a wild sheep chase might lose interest and fall by the wayside, that any new readers would be limited to students of Japanese literature. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what Elmer Luke said. And then Birnbaum notes particularly, uh, what I didn't want to happen was for either the author or the book to be dismissed. Um, And so, you know, maybe there was a chance of that with a, a sophomore outing with a novel that had, you know, some of these elements that, you know, we see again in 1Q84 with, but maybe less whimsical and that more like earnest and sincere with the kind of bizarre, um, hypersexual younger mm-hmm. women, you know. That's interesting. So as somebody who's read both the English and the Japanese novels, do you think that added to the novel by removing these sections? That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I do think the English translation stands on its own in a kind of incredible way. And almost, to be honest, it's almost, I hate to say better than the <laughs> Japanese, but in a way, it's, I would say it's just as good mm-hmm. as the Japanese. Like for me, as, a, as its own work of art, absolutely just a complete success. Um, the Japanese, though, you do lose some stuff. You know, there are some nice sections that, that get cut here and there. Um, these in particular with the granddaughter, I would say, I think I'm okay with, with cutting Mm -hmm. them. You know, there's, there's some stuff, you know, I think, um, David Karashima quotes another translator, the Danish translator, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Mette Holm, I think maybe that's the pronunciation, but you know, she, I think she kind of criticized the cuts, uh, for being maybe prudish a little (laughs) bit. And so... You know, I can see that side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I do think, that especially the the scene where they embrace and make out, it's very nice. I thought that, especially, it's a shame that that had to get, it felt like that might have been able to stay in there. Although, you know, the narrator does such a good job of like fending her off. She's constantly after him. She's asking him questions, all sorts of explicit sexual connection uh, uh, questions like, what positions do you like? Things like that, you know, that gets cut. And um, the narrator's constantly fending her off and he's able to fend her off completely to the end of the novel. But in the Japanese, there is this one scene where they make out. And so, you know, it's an interesting, I think it's it's very nice in that you get this um, kind of very Murakami um, reminiscing about, oh, I haven't made out with a 17-year-old girl since I was 17. (laughs) (laughs) Which, now that I say it out loud, sounds a little bit, you know, wrong, especially since the narrator is like 35 or something (laughs) like that. But um, at the same time, you know, cutting it makes him more consistent. You know, Mm -hmm. it it, uh, keeps him uh, on the no path, you know, which which he's been able to say for the most part for the whole, um, for the whole time, yeah. So I guess for a Western audience, it almost makes the main character a little more palatable. Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, you know, like 
Um, I mean, they, I think they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish with the cuts. Mm-hmm. I don't think all of them had to go, but I do think that cutting some of them, it definitely has that effect. And it, it wouldn't happen now, I don't think. But, you know, I do think that they were effective. I, I don't think that you lose too much with them. I think that you you still have some, you know, give and take between the two characters. You, there's a, It's very playful. Mm-hmm. It is difficult, though, isn't it, when you come across something like that in a trans... In a- Japanese text and you're like how should I word this in a way that makes the main character not sound like a creep because you don't want your readers to be like oh this character is gross I don't want to read this anymore I'm not going to buy it but Mm -hmm. on the flip side Mm -hmm. you have if you cut anything especially now with the internet and a lot of a lot of people know Japanese and you will find people who pick up on this stuff it's not it's not an easy challenge to uh to face that's really interesting that they they decided to be so liberal with their cuts yeah i mean uh this up until you know after wind up bird chronicle i don't think murakami had much choice you know the karashima book is really interesting he has some he had really great access to all the translators and murakami and you know murakami makes a specific note that i think you know some of these i don't he he didn't seem to have any um he didn't seem to be opposed to any of these cuts. Obviously, they gave him the mm-hmm. manuscript, and he said, "Yeah, this is this works." But that was then. You know, I don't know if it left it left um, a mark though, because he mentions specifically, "Oh, you know, they'll edit my stories for the New Yorker when they publish it, but then when I put them in a collection, I'll change the, I'll I'll put it back to the original." <laughs> so it's there's this resistance from Murakami mm-hmm. now to being edited. I would say, but. That, that either wasn't there or maybe he didn't realize it at the time. Um, I think his English has also improved. I think he's spent more time abroad, um, st- both as you know, visiting writer and just a traveler, that maybe now he's reading it closer. I'm not sure. that. I mean, his English was always pretty good. He was reading books in English. So um, so maybe that was something, you know, it's, it's a, yeah. You did mention that um, Murakami made his own revisions mm-hmm. in, in the Japanese in the republishing of the Japanese edition of the book, or was it? Yeah. How did was that influenced by the translation? No, you know, I I wondered that for so long while I was closely blogging these um, from about 2012 to 2018. I obviously did not have access to this book that was published in 2020, um, and so I was wondering. You know, I didn't know when the translation had originally been, I knew it was published in 91, 92, something, I can't remember exactly. I think nine, definitely 91. And I, but I wondered, you know, is it, had it been something that they had been working on for several years? But the Karashima book is, is pretty specific. He said that they were working on it in 91, which would have been after the complete works was published. And so um, they were rushing through it. So it was, you know, later in, in 91 even. So um, they, it's so interesting though, because I do think they were working off of maybe two manuscripts because there are things where some of the cuts mirror the cuts that Murakami made so closely, but then others, uh, there, there's one section, for example, there's one, I found one section that has one element from the original book and then one element from the complete works book. So they might have been kind of comparing the two different manuscripts, uh, and then making decisions on it. But Murakami's cuts, you know, like, looking at them they're i would say they're largely cosmetic for the most part you know he's not making any major revisions mm-hmm. to the text i would say they're not even as extensive as the changes that were made in translation uh, here and there he's 
cutting some name drops of like musicians and things like that. He cuts a couple mm-hmm. jokes here. He cuts a couple like um, like kind of random asides that feel like stream of conscious or improvisational. Um, and then I was just looking at the book and he cuts this one section where the narrator's kind of like, uh, there's two different techniques to kind of um, secure data. One's called laundering and one's called shuffling. And shuffling is this experimental uh, technique that only certain members of the the system can do, and it was an experiment. And he was one of the 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 few people who was able to uh, to do that. And so, in the scene where he's kind of explaining shuffling to the um, to the readers, basically, uh, he's imagining uh, what the people from the system were saying to him, and that that all gets cut, which is a, it's a very weird cut because it was really nicely it, it was nicely done. And really nicely translated too, I thought, and but kept in translation, uh, cut in the complete works uh, version. But it's still there in the Bunkobon edition. If you go by the Bunkobon, or any for that matter edition other than the complete works giant library set in Japan, it's going to be the original version. I wonder if that was because of he had to keep the stories down to a certain number of characters or pages. I think it was if sales, to be honest. Yeah. It's like, if you buy this, you get the director's cut. You get an, uh, you know, it, it strikes me as very like jazz musician. You get an extra track if you buy the, you know, a new a new edition of a, of an album, you know, 10 years, the 10th anniversary or something like that. Um, and then you also get this extra commentary, which there it's very cool. It's the, this little, little pamphlet. One comes with each volume and it's basically Murakami writing about... Um, his process, his writing process. It's, it's so, they're so interesting. Yeah. It's highly recommended for anybody looking to learn more about Murakami's writing process. Uh, really fascinating little reads. So it really is like a director's cut where you're reading the novel and then you also read how he approached it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's very, with this book too, I mean, it started as a novella in 1981. And so it, there's a lot of really interesting information. He called the novella is one of the few things that he hasn't published in the complete works. Well, that's not totally true, but because he doesn't publish, it's only fiction. So there's not any of his nonfiction, but it's, uh, he called it, yeah, a shippaisaku. And, uh, <laughs> a failed piece and, of work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you can only get it by basically finding the back issue at a library. And, uh, but it, what it was is it's, it's just the end of the world part of the story. Uh-huh. You, you get this kind of bookends of, uh, some other kind of world, but you don't get a good sense of what it mm-hmm. is. Uh, this, this narrator who's, he's not in the end of the world. He's outside this walled city, this walled village or town. And, um, and then he's inside it. And it's it's told in second person. It's a very experimental, hmm. and uh, it was he published it you know shortly after publishing um, Pinball nineteen seventy three. And I read on Japanese Wikipedia, so I don't know how um, whether this is true or not. But that he was written as a kind of uh, I guess ni- Pinball nineteen seventy three was up for the Akutagawa Prize oh, wow. at that point, and he and he wrote it as a if I win kind of like this is my artsy story, but. He may, he in the director's cut he mentions you know like this I could I I could kind of tell that it wasn't quite where it, where I didn't write what I wanted to be able to write mm-hmm. and I'm I'm disappointed that I published that and f- for that reason I'm not including it in my complete works even though the publisher wanted me to so yeah you get stuff like oh, that in the, the translator commentary yeah so I wonder if that's because yeah, it was really early on in his career 
Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. So, so it's almost like a third perspective of the hardboard wonderland and the end of the world that was never included mm-hmm. in the final edition. Ex- exactly. Yeah. No. It's it's the the very first one. And then he took those mm-hmm. chapters and just had a. I think he said that he wanted to rewrite them at some point, and uh, so he has a kind of you know foundation for this story, and then he comes up with a way to like thread it through with this modern kind of like sci-fi Tokyo story. I mean, Murakami is pretty famous for being very esoteric and odd. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a way kind of feeds into that whole weird Japan um, mm-hmm. aspect. So how did, what were some of the creative choices that Bourbon and Luke made when they translated this? Yes, I think that that's a really good question. I mean, they're just incredibly creative you know as a as a team the the best example of that is um the there's these in this subterranean lair as they're kind of you know traversing this i think two or three times during the novel um there's these kind of monsters that live down there and they have to be able to ward them off you don't actually ever see one so it's this kind of like off-screen uh monster but they're called yamikuro in Japanese. And so I think it's in kata, uh, hiragana. I, I think, yeah, I'm looking at my notes now. I wrote them in hiragana, so I assume I took that right from the book. But basically, you know, dark blacknesses or black darknesses, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, literally. But they translate it as inkling. So capital I-N-K and then L-I, lowercase l-i-n-g-s, mm-hmm. inklings. And it, they don't give any explanation uh, at all until page 137 in the book. So you've been reading, you know, you're almost halfway through the book at this point. You, you've gone through the this process of like, you know, this going through the sewer system, fighting, kind of warding off these monsters. They're, you know, they're called inklings. And then on page 137, um, these kind of like, um, uh, these thugs basically break into his apartment, the data guy's apartment to try and like um, get him to do what they want basically or and just intimidate him a little bit i think and one of the questions he asked them finally is what are inklings and so basically they just say you know yamikuro wa chika ni ikiru mono da chika tetsu toka suido gesuido toka souyu tokoro ni sumitsuite like that's the explanation we get in japanese but so so just for people who don't know japanese mm-hmm. so they they creatures that live underground in sewers mm-hmm. that's just that's mm-hmm. where they are that's it. Yes. And so a <laughs> hundred pages in, we've known them as inklings. And so they translate this as inklings. A sharp guy like you don't know about inklings, aka infra nocturnal kappa. You thought kappa were folktales? They live underground. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is added, right? Like it's so interesting. Like they've not only done this incredibly creative thing by like tapping into Japanese folklore. Mm-hmm. and um infra nocturnal kappa these kind of like you know you can it, you know I, it's so interesting because i think that for readers who don't know anything about japan it probably sounds like you can probably imagine whatever you want down there really mm-hmm. but for readers who know about japan it's a little it's a nice little nod to japanese folklore mm-hmm. and then the way they kind of like sat on it for uh, like over 100 pages and then revealed it i thought it was just incredibly almost genius level translation because it it fits in because the narrator of that side of the story is very much kind of like 
taken on this roller coaster ride that he has no control over. I mean, he's basically um, being used by this system, uh, by this specifically this um, scientist um, to to do his research, you know, and um, into people's minds and the way you protect data and things like that, which feels very modern, you know, big corporations controlling people, things like that, you know. Um, and so to just be be thrown, oh, Inklings, yeah, sure. I guess I'm dealing with Inklings now. Like that's very, that very much was his, the, the narrator's attitude uh, throughout the story. And then to, so to reveal it there felt just like a, a, a really incredible choice. That's also interesting that he's had to tra- translate it to Inklings. Because it gets, gives a very mm-hmm. ink, black, mm-hmm. something goopy, thick yes. imagery to it. And then also to tie it into this this almost scientific explanation, infranocturnal kappa. Mm. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, That's the ink, it, it's really a nice joining of the two, like the, the direct meaning, the you know, the capturing that dark black imagery with something, a little bit of extra, you know. I wonder how they, um, I mean, obviously they probably came up with it i imagine in their initial mm-hmm. translations they probably did something very direct and then ended up coming up with it with an idea to make it work really well but i'm still wondering like how on earth do people come up with these ideas <laughs> it's so good yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know that's such a good question you know um it's uh that unfortunately was not addressed in david karashima's book that would have been the, my one of my first questions yeah <laughs> uh, it, it but, is a shame uh, yeah. we don't have more books about the how translators approach translations no absolutely yeah you know it's funny the the book ends right around i guess right after wind up bird chronicle which um uh, jay rubin translated Mm -hmm. and then it just kind of yada yadas the other two translators philip gabriel and ted goosen i think is are the other two and i was like no i want to know about them too (laughs) so if you're listening david karashma you have a second book to write unfortunately i hate to be the one to tell you (laughs) you're missing half the story yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I wonder, I don't know. I guess, I guess you had to set the narrative somewhere and it worked pretty well. You know, it, it starts with um, Murakami uh, and also the translators kind of coming onto the scene and then becoming a success, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of commercial success uh, abroad. It does seem, a, at least within yeah. the translation community, that the translators of Murakami are probably just as famous as Murakami himself. Yeah, no, I think they've done a lot of work, you know, um, especially Ruben, he's written the, written the book. And then the other translators are, are very involved with, um, I think Ted Goosen's involved with Monk, the, that one of those literary magazines. Um, oh, I, can't I know which one you mean. Monkey, monkey something. I don't want to say monkey, I know it's not Monkey Punch, but <laughs> <laughs> that's the Lupin Sansei guy. But uh, yeah, that's the, the bilingual literary magazine, basically. But um, the other, um, I think it is just called Monkey Magazine. Monkey, yeah, it might just be called Monkey. Yeah, sorry, Karen. <laughs> no, but yeah, in terms of the one other um, kind of translation technique that I, I always found so interesting when I was kind of reading really closely was um, Birnbaum and Luke's use of space breaks and also their decisions at the ends of chapters. So. Um, just to give an example of an end of chapter, at the end of chapter seven, um, this is in the Hardboiled Wonderland section. Um, the narrator thinks he's being spied on in his apartment. He has been given a unicorn skull by this um, scientist, and um, 
he wants to research unicorns. So he calls the library and the woman that he saw at the library earlier, I think, uh, he's trying to get her to bring him some books. And so the last two lines are yada yada. やりやり。やりやりと彼女は言った。あなたの家の近く道順を教えていただけるかしら。私は喜んで道順を教えた。And now I'm really is that the right pronunciation? Michijun? I think that's right. But um basically um oh brother, uh she said, um can you tell me how to get to your place? And I gladly told her how to get there. Um and the English is I don't know why I'm doing this, she said. But I don't suppose you'd want to tell me the way to your place. And then they cut that last mm. line, which I thought was a was a good choice just because it's I think the ending is much stronger as a piece of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Whereas although, you know, t- I was double thinking myself um, that, you know, there would be a way to maybe translate the Murakami's narrator as a kind of like cheeky Yorokonde Michijun Oshieta. You know, there's there would be a way to do that maybe in English. But I do think that in terms of like purely looking at like the literary technique, that 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 was very like a strong ending, and and they do that in a number of different places. They're kind of adjusting, fine tuning the way that Murakami's ending his chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing they do is they create a lot of space breaks, additional space breaks that weren't present in the Japanese, mm-hmm. that create these dramatic pauses, um, and um, that's also really interesting. That I thought. Uh, oh, here's one example. I don't have the, the Japanese for it, but the English is uh, so. This is when this is, and this is a big spoiler. This is in chapter 27 when they're they've gone back down to save the grandfather who's kind of stuck, surrounded by inklings. And um, when he gets there, the grandfather explains basically you're going to like your self, your consciousness is going to self destruct, and you're going to be locked in the end of the world chapter. So that's that's the big spoiler. But um, and he's just kind of given this information to the narrator. And in translation, they add a space break right after that. So um, the, it goes, a profound silence fell over us. The professor coughed, the chubby girl sighed, the chubby girl's a granddaughter. I took a slug of whiskey. No one said a word. Space break. <laughs> right. That's really dramatic. Mm-hmm. Like that's a pause. But Murakami just keeps going. And the next line is, it, the translation is basically uh, off, uh, close to the Japanese, which is that a world that he'll be kind of sucked into what is it like you know so um i thought that was a really effective translation mm-hmm. technique but again you know it, it's taking um it's taking freedom with the with the original work to a certain extent um but but incredibly effective you know no one said a word you know like that's such a strong point to kind of leave the reader on for a minute to take a breath and then kind of go back into it yeah i guess if they had the oh so what's this other world like it makes it sound like mm-hmm. oh Okay, well that that's not that's not so dramatic. That's not so bad. I guess I can do this in English. Mm-hmm. I did notice that with a translation I was reading recently, where it did, that happened a lot. Where the Japanese, the end of the chapters tend to have repetition. Like it would mm. say, "Oh, this is going to happen," and then a character says, "Wait, this is going to happen," and then that would be cut or changed in English in order to have a more dramatic ending. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it, it happens a lot in this book where. Something's either cut or, and, and and in both sides, I think some of the examples I've given, are, most of them have been from the Harbo Wonderland side, but it happens in the other mm-hmm. uh, half of the book as well, you know. So it's, um, it's you know, it's interesting, you know, Luke does, Elmer Luke does note that, you know, there wasn't much editing in terms of the way that it's thought about in the 
Western publishing world, right? Like where the, the relationship between a writer and an editor is this relationship mm-hmm. where you're working with both an agent and an editor to go through several different drafts, you know, um, to, to get a manuscript to a certain point before it even goes to the editor. And then once the editor ha- has it, they're working very closely with it. Whereas maybe in Japan, you know, Murakami is doing revision. You know, he d- that's actually one thing he mentions in the, um, the extra pamphlet is that he showed the first draft to his wife and she's like, you got to rewrite the ending. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he's like, mentions being a little peeved at her, I think. And uh, so he totally rewrote, I think what happens in the end, which in this book I won't spoil because it's really um, critical. It, it, it basically wraps up the whole book and um, uh, ties everything together nicely. But um, the decision made at the end would have been totally opposite probably in his first draft and actually was in the novella. Um, and yeah, so that, that doesn't exist really in um, this kind of like thinking about the book in terms of how can we make it more dramatic? Like that kind of editing maybe is not happening with another partner in a way that it might be in it with an English novel. But Luke, I think kind of brought that kind of thinking and, and so did Birnbaum probably to a certain extent, but um, they probably were, were doing some of that, yeah. Do you think that's not as common in Japan to have an editor or somebody to give feedback and say this story isn't as strong as it could be? If you change this, you could make it better? Yeah, you know, that's such a good question. I wish, I don't know quite enough to say one way or the other. I do know enough about the, um, you know, I, I did an MFA and uh, haven't published a book, but heard from a lot of um, edit- editors and agents agents in particular who are basically saying, sorry, I can't sell this. You can't like, mm-hmm. you know, taking their writers out to dinner, uh, to a nice dinner to say, sorry, we can't publish the book you just sent me. Start writing a new one. <laughs> and the writers are like, absolutely, I'm on it, you know, because they just write, you know, mm-hmm. like it's it's a, I, it's an interesting mindset. I, I wouldn't know if that's true in Japan, I would to say one way or the other. But my sense is that maybe it's it's a different relationship i mean from everything i've heard and and luke was working very closely you know he was at kodansha international in tokyo uh working there for a long time and then um i mean that that's kind of that's what he says in in karashima's book yeah that's interesting so he was even a bilingual editor he was not totally fluent in um in Japanese, I don't think it was interesting. Oh. It's, it sound, I mean, the story is that he w- he moved to Japan with his uh, wife at the time. They ended up splitting up, but then he was um, he ended up moving back with a different partner. And um, I think his partner was a professor at a university in Japan or something like that. And then he in- he needed to find a job and was got hired at. Um, Kodansha or something like that I think but basically he was doing the editing of some of the of their English their their international library so they would do you know one book per writer sometimes two you know like it, so it was a bit of a special exception for Murakami to get two uh, books to be honest they mentioned that in the in the piece especially at the time if you think about it 91 mm. they were probably at that point th- they weren't putting out nearly as much just on the whole like the publishing world wasn't trans translating nearly as much as they are now um and so for one writer to get more than one book is, is a pretty special thing i think yeah it is really interesting how a translator and even an editor's background can definitely shape how they approach a piece of work yeah 
Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and I know that Ruben made cuts to a Wind Up Bird Chronicle at the publisher's requirement. That they just could, they weren't ready to commit to the the page count, mm. and so. But he mentioned in his book that um, he was he brought you know he was very he took whole chapters out, so it wasn't like a kind of let me take lines here and there. He took a, a, he kind of was like surgical about his choices, I would say. Um, but it's a much longer book than than this one, and. Um, but when he sent it to the publisher, they they basically accepted his suggested cuts without um, any complaints. It sounded like so in his book, he mentions that maybe he could have left a little bit more in. But again, I haven't read Wind Up Bird Chronicle that closely to know how it affects the whole the book as a whole. But my sense is that it it might not affect it that that much. But it, yeah, it, it would be that that would be an interesting project if somebody wants to see how that went. I know I attended a talk by Jay Rubin a couple of years ago, and he mentioned how there was there was one change he made in a translation because there was a mistake in the Japanese, and mm. he he fixed it in the translation, and then in a reprint of the Japanese, they fixed it in the Japanese edition. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you know, it's there's a couple little stories like that for Hardlore Wonderland. Mm-hmm. There's you know this was pre-internet era, and so there were things that they were they were doing the translation on, and they were sending faxes back and forth to Murakami trying to figure <laughs> so out Japanese. <laughs> where did you come up with this stuff? Did you make this up? Did you, is this a real animal? You know, like, and, uh, but yeah, no, this was, um, pre even email era to be mm-hmm. honest. Like, and so I was surprised how much of Kurashima's book was faxes and how many faxes people must've kept. I guess they must've realized, okay, we're working with literary history here. Let's, let's put these faxes in a special folder. Um, but yeah, there's a couple places where they ended up making small mistakes. Either they ended up kind of guessing about animals mm-hmm. that were, ended up actually being real. And then at one point, there's, I think, um, some kind of music album or movie title is there's a, mis- a small mistake, but it's like, it's totally minor, you know. It does make me appreciate being a translator in the era of the internet. It's yeah. so easy to get hold of information or to check with your peers or to check with a native Japanese speaker or even to check with the author if that's possible. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And even just to kind of cut cut, cut and paste, you can use a digital, mm-hmm. um, if you're u- working from a digital version of the text, you can copy a term and, and paste it into Google or a dictionary. I can even do that from my computer onto a dictionary on my phone, you know, and it, it's it's hard to imagine being like, oh no, I have to look up that kanji again. <laughs> you know, how many, what's the radical, how many strokes are there? You know, <laughs> um, although I've definitely got into Twitter arguments about that where people have, have said, you're just a lazy young kid. And I'm like, oh yeah, probably that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. No, not necessarily. If there's, I guess it depends on what you're researching and how much effort you put in. Yeah. No, yeah. Th- I, was, I think it was all kind of in good fun. Like, you know, like in my day, we were, you know, translating. We had to walk uphill twice to translate. I don't know. Yeah, whatever the, walk the, uphill the, the to the local fax machine. Yes. To, uh, to walk uphill to the library to get the kanji dictionary and uh, find the find the words we needed to translate. But yeah, no, it's it's um, Karashima's book. I can't recommend that highly enough to anybody who's interested in Murakami or translation. Um it's it's an excellent it really well written too i think he wrote it in japanese and then translated into english so um it exists in both languages oh wow so it's a translated book about translation although if he translated it himself is it translation or is it just a rewrite in english 
Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> Let me see what it says in the front. It doesn't say anything about the Japanese edition, but um, yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's really, really well written, and you know, a lot of really good quotes from academics. You know, there's a lot of really good academics who were, you know, one. I think one of them says that the the cuts for the 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 girl in pink, the kind of the granddaughter character, are they shouldn't have been cut. They should have been left in, and also that some of this longer kind of like stream of consciousness cuts the danish translator notes that those are when you remove those it's you're losing something some part of murakami Mm -hmm. like those those sections serve to kind of slow down the novel and that becomes this really important element in the book that um time is very limited for this character this one character and um he's spending he has to spend this time wisely And, and those stream of consciousness sections slow down the novel and you're kind of very interior uh, and those interior sections are very um uh, she mentions uh, you know raymond chandler or yeah chandler-esque um which you know that's one of murakami's uh favorite detective novelists and um yeah so i mean it, it's a great book it's 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 a lot of really good insight into hardboiled wonderland in particular but also basically murakami's uh, translations through a wind-up bird chronicle. Do you think, have you read much of Murakami's more modern works? Yeah, I've read basically all of them, all of the, his big novels. Uh, from 1Q84 onward, I've only read them in Japanese. Mm-hmm. So actually, that's not totally true. I read, which one? I read the really long title, the Tazaki Tsukuru, Tsukuru Tazaki. And I, I read that one in English translation. The, what is it? The Tsukuru Tazaki and his years of pilgrimage. So there's something with color in there too. I can't remember it is. Shikisai no nai Tazaki Tsukuru. Colorless Tsukuru Tazaki. <laughs> and his years of pilgrimage. Yes, I think that I think I got it. So I read that one in English too, but the others I've read in Japanese. Yeah. So Killing Commendatory was his most recent one, mm-hmm. 1Q84, and that had three volumes. So I read all those and then the story collections, I haven't kept up with quite as well. He had that one recently, First Person Singular, that I read a couple stories in, but I haven't uh, haven't finished it. I was going to ask, do you think the approaches to his, translating his works have changed since the 30 years ago that uh, Harbaugh Wonderland mm-hmm. was translated? Yeah, I think in with the novels, you can't get away with cuts anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I think those are basically... Murakami, pure Murakami. Obviously, the translators are are being very creative, and they've got to find solutions for different language problems, just like any translator. But I don't think there's as they're editing quite as heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, uh, I think a good example is he's still being edited in the New Yorker. So he wrote a nonfiction piece that was published in I think Bungei Shunju that I just I happened to be in Japan I think in 2019 and was just looking on the bookstore shelves, like doing some tachiyomi like you do. And they had a piece by him. And so it was really good. It was about his father's time uh, during the war. And he looked up the different kind of um, armies, the, the parts of the armies, the battalions and things that his father was in and wrote about how he was basically almost at the rape of Nanking, you know, and things like that, or something like that, I think. And the version in the new yorker has a lot of cuts Mm. it's like very heavily edited i would say and in comparison yeah and um that almost like felt like that wasn't the translation they must have submitted a 
perfectly accurate translation in terms of line to the line, I would say, you know, probably a, a good translation. And then I'm sure that the editor mm -hmm. went through it and said, this is what we're going to do to it because we do this for all writers, you know. So um, that was interesting to see. Nothing comes off the top of my head in terms of what was changed. Other than that, it might have just been shortened because it was a relatively longer piece. You know, and Bungay Shunju is, is a pretty, th you know, thick magazine. And whereas The New Yorker is a, a bit more of a thinner one, um, comes out, I think, what is it, every two weeks, I think. And whereas The Bungay Shunju is a monthly. I guess similar to how... Hardboard Wonderland and the End of the World was translated in the early 1990s. The New Yorker is trying to aim for a more generic audience. Yeah. And so they, yeah, I can, I can, I can understand why publishers do what they do in terms of edits for certain things, especially if it's something new, like in the early 90s when Japanese translation wasn't very common and tra Japanese writing was very out there. Like I can see why they do it, and I guess it's it's an interesting discussion about whether on a moral level, that's what you should do or not. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, it's, um, it's, I mean, it, it's, if you can get the writer's input, that's all, all, all ideal. Yes. I would say, obviously, you know, that really is critical, I think. Um, but you know, I think in the nineties, Murakami probably wouldn't have had much say, you know, if he had gone to them and said, <laughs> Hey, hold up, you know, what's going on here? You know? Um, but I imagine, like, I can't even imagine, like, what would you do if you were being translated into hundreds of languages? What, how would you even quality control that? At some point, you'd just be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and just kind of trust them and obviously vet the translator and trust editors and things like that to a certain extent. Um, I guess but, yeah. I guess it also really yeah. depends on the, on the author. There's... Um, mm -hmm. Um, there's an author whose name has completely slipped my mind, even though I'm literally reading one of his books now. Mm -hmm. And he's writing this incredibly long epic. Like the books in English are about 1,300 pages. Uh, Brandon Sanderson. Mm. He, okay. um, he's writing these massive epic fantasy and his book has been translated into many languages. And so he's created like a massive wiki page that he only shares with the translators and apparently they are free to contact him and say, is this a reference to something? Is this foreshadowing for something else? And he gives them a lot of that background information that would be very difficult to get if you were just on your own trying to guess that's what awesome. the author is trying to get at. Yeah, no, that's really cool. You know, that sounds like a perfect solution, you know, to, for a writer to be so involved in his own in, in their own translations is, is just awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it can imagine like someone like, you know, George R. R. Martin being translated to you have a lot of these fan communities doing some of that work, probably like, um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how the translation has impacted Murakami's writing and he has also impacted the translation. And now it seems like he's a lot more involved in the translations of his works. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, you've got really interesting uh, things like with 1Q84, they had two, uh, two, maybe three translators. Oh, wow. That, I think I think it was two. Ruben signed up for, I can't remember if it was just the first half of the book or if it was the whole first two volumes. And then, but when the third volume came out, he was like, sorry, I can't, I can't do that. So he, they, I think Philip Gabriel mm -hmm. split that last, took that last volume or maybe the Philip Gabriel did the second book, but that also was a matter of, speed you know getting the um doing the translation more quickly um, too you know and that's I, actually that reminds me of another little anecdote mm -hmm. um which is that i think he shared the manuscript for wind up bird chronicle 
early with translators or was basically start starting to think about getting his translations going and being actively translated, seeking out translators, whereas he maybe he hadn't done that for his first, um, you know, six, seven years or maybe 10 years of writing. Uh, he hadn't done that. He hadn't really thought about um, kind of actively getting his works translated. And But then Wind Up Bird Chronicle, I think that's when he was kind of starting to reach out and try and set things oh, up, wow. get things going because he knew it was a long, a long haul to get a book like mm-hmm. The Wind Up Bird Chronicle going. Yeah. That's really interesting. So it's almost a, did they start after he'd finished or did they start just before he'd finished? Or does it? Um, I can't remember what they said, but I do know that. So Wind Up Bird Chronicle was serialized first in, I think, Shincho. Mm-hmm. So month it was serialized monthly for a first chunk of the novel. And then I think they released a second volume in or something like that. I can't remember the exact circumstances for the publishing, but there's something like that where part of it was serialized. And so maybe the translator just had access to that whole thing initially, um, which is funny because, you know, the uh, Hardwell Wonderland is a kakioroshi. The, so it's just totally new, independent novel, not serialized, whereas his previous books had been. And um, because of that, it didn't have quite as hard a deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murakami mentions that in his pamphlet that he felt less pressure to kind of meet the deadline uh, and was able to kind of sit and think and, and work on this puzzle of tying the two stories together. That's really interesting. But I think that definitely does make a difference to the, the novel and the flow of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. yeah. sorry. Uh, so, yes, I wanted to ask you one more thing. Um mm-hmm. Was how does how did has this translation impacted you personally? Yes. No, I'm glad you asked this because it totally changed my life. Um, I was a it was between my junior and senior years in high school, so 1999, and I found it on a bookshelf in New Orleans. The the bookstore is no longer there. Uh, it was called Boku Books, and you know I don't know what it was. I don't remember if. It might have been sitting there on like a kind of staff recommendation list, but I also have this vague memory of kind of like seeing seeing something by Murakami and then going to the shelf and finding this other book and seeing it and grabbing it. And so I just picked it up and read it that summer and it just blew me away. I had not read anything like it. For the longest time, I thought I wanted to study like neuroscience because the book <laughs> is all about like the brain, although in a very like kind of like, um, like uh, not in a very like amateurish i would say way i clearly as murakami put some thought into the the kind of phony science that goes into this book but um i was like oh yeah this is really interesting i want to be a neuroscientist but what i what it really made me want to do was read it in japanese and read some of his other stuff in japanese and that's kind of what i ended up going on to do so um yeah i don't know you know it's funny i mean i had been interested in some elements of Japanese culture before that, but not in an, I don't know if it would have been enough to push me to study the language. So this was kind of the thing that not only pushed you to learn Japanese, but then I'm guessing led you to translation. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, yeah, actually, you know, it's funny. I studied with Jay Rubin in college and, but I didn't know that until I got to college. Um, I, I was, he was, um, on a sabbatical my freshman year. And I went into the the Japanese literature class uh, because I was it was at Harvard and you can sh- they call it shopping period for the first two weeks. You don't have to register. You just kind of 
go in and peruse whatever class you want to. It's it's only it's a very privileged thing that only the Ivy League could do. I feel like it's having gone to a public school for graduate school. It seems so ridiculous because it's like these schools have to you know fill up their classes you know you know months and months in advance before the semester to make sure everything works out. But um, it was this incredible opportunity to kind of walk in any class and see if you wanted to take it. And so I had run over to this this kind of basic Japanese literature survey class after some other class. And Susan Napier was there. She's an um, anime scholar, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, uh, I think she's probably done some other stuff too, right? Um, I've mostly read and, her essays on anime, but yes. Yeah. And so she was there as a guest professor for that year teaching the survey class, but also teaching an anime class, which is cool. And I said, I love Murakami. I love Har- Harwell Wonderland. I want to. T- I think I want to take this class. And she's like, you should really wait until Jay Rubin comes back. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I had no idea he was a professor here. So somehow, um, yeah, that was a very cool experience. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So you learned under one of Murakami's translators himself. Yeah. Yeah. I got to take his uh, survey class and then a translation class. And so that, I think that class was my first time doing any translation that would, uh, I did some translations before that, that were that not for my, out of interest in translation, but out of, I needed to do it for a class. Mm. I was interested in reading uh, up until that point, you know, Japanese works, but I think that class did get me translating in a way and thinking about translating and maybe wanting to translate in a way that I hadn't before. Mm. So, yeah. So in a way it did. Yeah. So. I think, yeah, I wouldn't have been on this path without that without this book for sure. So, um, it was it was a cool opportunity to be able to uh, to finally read it after so long. But then also, yeah, talk about it here. That's amazing. So, I guess I guess ending off, where can people find you? And I'm going to include your um, link to your essays about this in the show notes. Uh, yes, you can find me um, basically anywhere. I'm at How to Japanese on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, howtojapanese.com is the website. And uh, yeah, so on if you go on the top page, there's um, a link to, um, I think I call it the Hardball Wonderland Project. And I've got, you know, f- I think 40 blog posts, one for each chapter that I did from 2012 to 2018. And I'll probably do a follow-up one now after having done this and having read uh, Karashima's book with a, a few more details. Because obviously at the time I was kind of like, thinking through things on the blog, didn't really know some of the details. But yeah, find me there. Great. I'm definitely looking forward to a follow-up then. Great. Oh, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Translation Chat. I'm Jennifer O'Donnell, and you can find me on Twitter at GenTranslations or my website, j-entranslations.com. The Translation Chat theme was composed by Alex Valles, and the logo was designed by Kate Soldevilla. Links to all of these can be found in the show notes. Catch you next time.